we wouldn't be able to make a 300 mile journey now with our fancy hiking boots and you know water camel backpacks like but these guys did these for the sole reason of defending the gospel there's people teaching false doctrine in our churches i don't care how far i have i'll go through 300 miles let's go and he just without question travels 300 miles and so to the apostle paul the central focus was that god be glorified through the preaching of the gospel and I think the, the more we can have that as our, as our focus, the more we can have that, that mind of Christ that was in the mind of Paul, we could be able to say like, like Paul does. I'll end with this last quote, 1 Corinthians 9.23. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And in essence, everything was good. Life was good for the apostles um, in that church and for the church of Antioch. They had received back their missionaries. I mean, when you send people out in the first century for a, for a mission trip like that, you don't know if you're going to get them back. And the apostle Paul and Barnabas were home. Everything was good. But that sweet time of, of peace was short-lived because as we just read in chapter 15 here, Unfortunately, there's going to be an intermission of the good times. And in Acts chapter 15, there's two big conflicts that arise in the church, in the early church here. Number one, we're going to see that the apostles have to defend some false teaching in the churches. There's men from Judea coming to the church saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. So they have to deal with this conflict. The next conflict that's in Acts chapter 15 that I think we're not going to get to today We'll save it for next time, but here the Apostle Paul wants to set out for a second missionary journey, but a huge conflict erupts over uh, whether they're going to take John Mark with them on that second missionary journey. It actually causes Paul and Barnabas to split ways, which is, I think, one of the saddest moments in the book of Acts so far. But as far as the first a uh, dispute in the early church. You know, we all, I think we've all thought at times, well, I wish I could go back to the, to the first century and just live in the times of the apostles' churches, right? I bet their church was perfect. I bet everything was great and there was no issues. No, they had issues just like we do. So again, let's just for the sake of time, not too much introduction, let's just dive in here uh, to verse 1. If you remember, again, the setting is in Antioch. The city well north of Jerusalem, this is where Paul and Barnabas' church is. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, this is where it said, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So I stopped there just to set this up with the obvious reminder to answer the question, how important is this issue that arose in the church? Well, it's of infinite importance because this teaching had to do with what one must be do to be saved. So there literally could not be a more important issue at hand. We're, we're talking heaven or hell. We're talking a gospel that saves versus a gospel that will not save. Um, Verse 1 says that these men are from Judea. Now, that's interesting because Judea is the area south where Jerusalem is at. That's where 
uh, the apostles are at. So these men came up to Paul's church. Obviously, they're, they're, they're claiming to be Christians. They're claiming to be from the area around Jerusalem where the apostles were. Um, I don't think they would have ever been able to teach in Paul's church if they hadn't been uh, claiming those credentials and weren't claiming to be Christians. But as you read here, it seems the apostles very quickly uh, catch on to this teaching. Uh, Very quickly they realize these men are not teaching that man is saved by faith in Christ alone. Uh, They hear this addition, this addition of obedience to the Mosaic law, most notably circumcision, as, as being a requirement for salvation from these men. And so these men are teaching, in essence, salvation by faith in Christ plus the law of Moses. And I say it like that because there's nothing in the text that that makes us think that these men were not also teaching that you do have to put your faith in Christ. Um, I think it would have, the text would have brought that out. Um, And that's important to notice because um, most, most false teaching, and I actually had to kind of rack my brain for any pseudo cultish Christian uh, offshoot of Christianity that teaches a false gospel that really none of them teach you don't have to put your faith in Christ. They just add to that. So that's something always to remember. I, I know people that, you know, have tried to uh, evangelize or witness, you know, Roman Catholics, for instance, and they come back kind of uh, stumbled like, oh, like I told them they need to put their faith in Jesus, and they agreed. So I I guess we all just believe the same thing. I didn't realize they believed that. I thought they just believed you have to work your way to heaven. Well, no, that's not what they believe. Um, They believe you have to to trust in Christ, but unfortunately, they don't believe that faith in Christ alone justifies. So that's really what you're listening for when you're dealing with people of of other religions. So this false teaching comes into the church. And as you can imagine, I, I would not have wanted to, well, I actually would have wanted to be in the, the room, but you could imagine the tension of what that room was like when, when Paul and Barnabas start hearing what they're saying and they start looking at each other like, are they saying what, you, what it sounds like they're saying? And then this, uh, this debate breaks out and, the, and Paul and Barnabas have to, to challenge. Look, what it, look at the wording in verse 2. These people are teaching in the church Verse 2 says, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Luke says no small dissension. I think that's a very polite way, a very nice way that Luke is, is putting this. I think what it's saying is that the debate was on. These men came into the church teaching circumcision being necessary for salvation. And Paul and Barnabas were ready to, uh, to deal with that, that issue. Because you have to remember the context, as I just said. Paul and Barnabas just came back from a year or two of risking their lives for the gospel of of faith in Christ alone. They've spent years risking their life for that. So when somebody comes into their church teaching otherwise, um, you can imagine that these men weren't having having this in their church. Um, To play the devil's advocate and sort of to be fair, you try to put yourself in the mind of, of the first century Christian, and you might think how some of these in some of these men in the early church could have been uh, difficult for them to grasp. In essence, 
justification by faith alone. I mean, these are, these are Jews who have been raised in Judaism. All they know are the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and, and all they know is circumcision. Uh, Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant taught circumcision. Moses in the Mosaic covenant taught circumcision. And so you can see why these men might think, why, why would God stop requiring circumcision all of a sudden like this? They might stumble over that. And, and obviously, obviously that did. And the short answer to that question is, why would God stop circumcision? Well, that, that points to the, the, one of the big distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, you're in the covenant by family lineage. You circumcise that boy that you have, and he's, as, as a result of taking that sign of the covenant, he's in the Old Covenant, where in the New Covenant, you're not in the New Covenant because your parents are Christians. You're in the New Covenant by faith in Christ alone. And so there's a distinction there. There's a difference, and that's why... That's why we don't baptize babies, because the covenant, the covenant is different. The covenant, the way Hebrews explains it, is better. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. We don't have to tell somebody in the new covenant, know the Lord. They all, they all know the Lord. So the apostles have this question, this debate before them. And, and they've given their answers. Paul and Barnabas have debated with these men, but they want to they shut this question down once and for all. And so if you go on in verse 2, what do the apostles decide to do? Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So Paul and Barnabas, with these others from the church, they make their way all the way up to Jerusalem. Uh, they're received by the church. They're greeted by the church in, in Maybe I haven't made it as clear as I should have, but when you look at the timeline of Paul's life, this is actually his third trip to Jerusalem. This isn't Paul's first trip uh, to Jerusalem. He went there right after he was converted. He went there uh, for another reason with, with uh, a giving trip with some money, and now he's coming for this reason. So I just bring that up to say that Paul's no stranger by this point to Peter and, and the other apostles. They know the gospel he preaches uh, they know that he's preaching to the Gentiles, salvation by faith in Christ alone. There shouldn't be any surprises. Um, Galatians chapter 2 has already happened. Paul's already conf confronted Peter at one point in history when he was making an error with the gospel. So, so there, there shouldn't be any surprises about what Paul believes, what Paul is preaching, and the church receives him with his gospel. Verse 4 tells us here what, what Paul did when he arrived. He did the same thing that Peter did when he arrived back from seeing Gentiles saved. He, he reports everything that God is doing. Just like when Cornelius was saved with Peter, Peter came back to Jerusalem and he said, this is what God is doing. God has given the Spirit to the Gentiles. Uh, he's been performing uh, signs, 
miracles. He's, he's granted repentance to these Gentiles by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they received it by faith. And Paul reports the same thing again to these guys. Hey, the Gentiles will be converted. God's saving them. It's been evidenced by the Spirit of God that they're being saved by the preaching of faith in Christ alone. Verse 5 says, so, so they're sharing they're sharing the reality of what they've seen as they preach, but then verse 5 says, but some believers, and I put that in quotes, I literally have a me in quotes around that word in, in my notes here, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So this is interesting to me that, that this teaching is so prevalent. Um, in essence, it's, it's, it's spread everywhere already. It's, it's not only uh, been taught all the way up in Antioch, but even still in Jerusalem, you still have people there saying you must be circumcised to be saved. What's so interesting about that to me is the timing of all this because Acts chapter 15 is, most of the scholars put it like 49 to 50 AD. That's over 15 years after Jesus has ascended. So Jesus preached, sent out his apostles, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. He's been gone for 15 years. And you would think after 15 years, at least I would assume, that these things would have been worked out already. Like, how is this still a debate 15 years later that there's still people in these churches? There's still people in the apostolic churches, these churches where the apostles are, teaching something so, so off, so wrong, so um, dangerous to the gospel. I guess you could follow it up with the other interesting thing is that this debate has never ended there's still people teaching to this day um, that, the, that the gospel of grace that we preach is, is not correct. I mean, nobody, this day, nobody today really, I've never heard of anybody necessarily adding circumcision to faith in Christ, but there are certainly numerous people in denominations, or I don't call them denominations, I call them cults, that teach you must be baptized to be saved. There's there's group that say you must speak in tongues to be saved. There's, there's all these attempts of adding to justification by faith. They add uh, any, number, any number of works. And, and, and there's some groups, I mean, really all groups. I'd say one sign of the one true religion is that they teach justification by faith in Christ alone. Because you have what is, what's in common with all these other groups, whether it's Mormonism Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholics, Church of Christ, they all deny justification by faith alone. We taught that that's why we teach the kids the solas. We teach them that you're saved by faith in Christ alone because that teaching, if you can substantiate that teaching in the Bible and if you can show them from the Bible that that is true, then that eliminates all these other religions. All these other religions by, by default are not, are not valid, are not true, and so... So this is a very crucial time in church history. A lot of people place 
because this really is a debate that runs throughout the book of Acts, but Acts 15, where all the apostles come together to decide this, a lot of, a lot of people who, who write these commentaries on Acts, they say this is kind of like a climax, like an apex in the book. This is where this, this issue uh, climaxes and has to be dealt with, and all the apostles come together to deal with it. This is, this is a point in history when, when, in essence, the very gospel that can save souls is at stake because you can kind of hypothetically imagine the damage. What if these uh, these men from Judea had won the day, had won the argument? What kind of damage to the gospel that would have done? Where you had the maybe the church in Antioch or the church in Jerusalem convinced and and led astray by by this kind of a, a gospel? Imagine the damage. Of course, God didn't let that happen. God was faithful to, uh, to use the apostles to, to kill this threat here. And, and that's, that's what we see in our text today, how this, how this false teaching is, is, is brought low. Um, I, I think it is helpful and fair to remember, because, you know, like I said, I get frustrated with, man, come on, guys, like, how are y'all still, how is this still an issue? Like, Jesus taught y'all specifically, you know, these truths. How is this still an issue? But... You have to remember, this is that transitional time in redemptive history where you have, you know, Jews in particular, the people of God, coming out of thousands of years, you know, under Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, and now there's a, there's a huge, a huge change, and, and it's a huge change for these guys, and they're, they're still trying to work all these details out about not only how they're to relate to the law, but, but what are we to do with these Gentiles? How do we relate to these Gentiles? How, how are Gentiles becoming the people of God? Like that would be a very strange teaching for the, for the Jew. So, so the situation is here is you have these, these sides being drawn. Verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, so Peter speaks first, you know, it's, that's how we know Peter, he's always quick to speak, but Peter has a very good word for the church here. It tells us here, Peter says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And so I stop there just to point out the fact that this, this is a good word from Peter. Peter is just, in essence, reiterating the argument that uh, he made when he came back from Cornelius' house. Um, his argument is that, that God himself chose Peter to go preach to the Gentiles. Um, you remember that, that calling he had while he was on top of the roof? Acts chapter 10. And when Peter preached the gospel, it was God himself that testified that these Gentiles were in fact being saved, were being brought into the people of God. Uh, they had been given the Holy Spirit. They had, they had been sealed the same way that Peter and all of these fellow Jews had been sealed at Pentecost. And so God was displaying his acceptance of the Gentiles 
and this is the big thing, not after being circumcised, or in not even after baptism, if you, if you go read Acts chapter 10 again, but through the means of the preaching. He says here, he cleansed their hearts by faith. Because if you remember, when Paul was preaching to Cornelius and his family, the Spirit of God fell on Cornelius before he even, it says while he was still speaking. He hadn't even finished preaching, and these Gentiles were saved. So they hadn't been circumcised. They hadn't even had time to be baptized, but they were saved in the midst of the preaching of the gospel. That's, that's Peter's argument. He goes on now in verse 10. Now, therefore, this is like kind of like his second point, his second argument. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, this is a good point to, to, to get, and you need to feel the weight of Peter's point here. Peter's speaking of the, the yoke of the law, the, the, the burden, the weight of the law. And Peter's point is, nobody's able to keep the law. Nobody's been able to keep the law uh, well enough to gain justification. Not the fathers of Israel, Peter's saying, not even ourselves. So if we can't keep the law like that, why would we expect these Gentile dogs to be able to, to keep the law and to gain justification? We, nobody's been able to do that. And, and it's a good argument. If, if, if you've tried to be perfect, you've seen how hard that is to accomplish. It's impossible. It's impossible. And so Peter says, why would we try to to burden the Gentiles with this. We, we couldn't even do it. Lastly here in verse 11 is, I have it here, is Peter's definitive statement of gospel clarity. Peter's definitive statement of gospel clarity. And I'm just putting the note, I've kind of warned you all before, but once Peter makes this statement, it's interesting to note that in the book of Acts, this is the last time we hear from the apostle Peter. You literally, we do not see Peter for the rest of the book of Acts once he, once he makes this statement. The, the book of Acts turns to the Apostle Paul and his missionary endeavors to grow the church. That's, that's the book of Acts from here on out. But, but Peter, Peter goes out with a blaze of glory here with this definitive statement on the gospel. Verse 11, Peter says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter says, we're saved by grace. Mic drop. That's it. That's the answer. That's, that's where Peter lands. We're saved, by the, we're saved the same way the Gentiles are, by grace. And I'm sure Peter, kind of knowing Peter, maybe, maybe Peter thought that would have won the day and maybe the arguments were over. But the text here tells us that Barnabas and Paul pick the mic up again and they, they want to beat the dead horse. Um, and I also make the point, seems like we're, we're beating up on uh, Catholicism today, but this is always just a, a necessary point to make in Acts chapter 15 is that if Peter is who the Roman Catholic Church says he is, as if he is the, the Pope if he is the infallible vicar of Christ on earth, his word is, is 
is the final word. That's how the, the Pope is treated today. That's kind of what his, the point of his position is in the church. But if Peter is that uh, to the apostles and Peter makes this definitive statement and definitive argument concerning the gospel, um, the argument would be over and the apostles could go home and they could just have a letter from Peter saying this is what Peter says and, and, and all is well. But that's not what we see here. We see the other apostles continue uh, to make their arguments. Uh, it, Peter did, in fact, have a word for sure, but he is just one of the words. And so verse 12 says that Paul and Barnabas continue. It says all the assembly fell silent, and now they're listening to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so this is what what Paul and Barnabas have been doing, they're still going. They're, they're just relaying the realities of how God has been uh, working signs and wonders, how God has been definitively saving Gentiles. And they've been preaching justification by faith in Christ alone, and God's been saving. That's, that's their argument. So after them, verse 13 says, After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. So now we have... James speaking of this James in the church in Jerusalem here is uh, Jesus's half brother is a way to describe who he is. Um, speaking of the resurrection, James is interesting because when you read through the Gospels, James did not believe in Jesus rightly. Throughout the Gospels, James seems to be one of the brothers along with the other ones who are just kind of mocking Jesus and, and not not he's he's not one of Jesus's disciples. He's not a follower of Jesus. Um, but all of that changes uh, when Jesus rises from the dead. When Jesus rises from the dead, the Bible tells us that he actually appeared to James. And from that point on, all we hear is of James. Uh, obviously, very quickly rose to prominence in the early church. Um, maybe you see why. I mean, he, was, he grew up with Jesus. Maybe he had more insight in, into the, the life of Jesus, into the teachings of Jesus. Um, but he was obviously thoroughly convinced by, as you would be if your brother rose from the dead, um, he was convinced and, and ready to lay his life down with the other apostles. And he has here in the church, a, a, in, in essence, an equal, an equal voice and an authority with with the apostle Peter, and he speaks here to the issue at hand. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Again, James is just echoing what Peter just explained, how God has been saving the Gentiles through him. Verse 15, James says, and with this... The words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Now, God is saving the Gentiles. James says, with this, the words of the prophets agree. He just makes this unqualified statement that this is what the prophets say. This is what the prophets foretold, that God would save the Gentiles. And so, it's an unqualified statement. You may ask your mind, like, Okay, I've, I've read the Old Testament. I'm trying to think, where did God speak to these things? Where did God speak about 
the Gentiles being saved because the Jews, to them, it seemed like this was a huge surprise. Like they never would have imagined God was saving Gentiles. This is, this is crazy to them. Um, I think it would be an interesting study to go through the Old Testament and just document all the places where God foretold uh, of Gentile inclusion. But James wants to prove his point, and he just quotes one prophet. He quotes Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 is what he's quoting. And verse 16 is, is the section of text that he pulls out to make his point. It says, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Now what's interesting about this quote, if you look back at the text, what did Amos say first has to happen before the rest of mankind, before the Gentiles are going to be called by God, The text said in Amos that there must be a rebuilding of the tent of David. And so here we have this apostolic interpretation of the book of Amos that's obviously saying this this rebuilding of David's tent is a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to this coming seed of David who who would be the one who forever reigned on King David's throne. And really, that's, that's literally what we see happening. That, that is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, is beginning with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension and exaltation of Christ to the Father, and with that, uh, the rest of mankind. With that, this begins the Gentiles being brought in. That's what we, that, that is the book of Acts, is the Gentiles the church growing through the preaching of the gospel, through this missionary endeavors of of Peter and now Paul, and we see the Gentiles being brought in. And this is what God has said before. Verse 18 says, Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. The most obvious uh, from of old reference is probably back in early Genesis. You had God's promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God didn't say through your seed, only your seed would be blessed, speaking of the coming Jewish nation, but God at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis 12, has been foretelling that, that there was going to be these days where the Gentiles, and never forget, that's us. This is the good news, is that he's saying we, we get to be saved. All that was promised from the very beginning. If you, if you know your Pauline theology, you're wondering, oh, that's weird. Um, Paul says Gentiles being saved is a mystery, right? Have you, does that come to your mind, the multiple places where God speaks of, or where Paul speaks of Gentile inclusion being a mystery? Well, it's obviously simply a mystery in, in its full revelation, in its full realization, but Surely the scriptures have been speaking to this reality. And so James's argument is this shouldn't be a surprise. The, the Old Testament has been saying this was going to happen. And 
Verse 19 is how James summarizes. He says, therefore, because the scripture promised it, verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. So James is agreeing, as he says, with the prophets. He's agreeing with, with the other brothers, with Peter, with Paul, with Barnabas. The Gentile believers are, are, are not bound to keeping all 613 Old Covenant laws in order to be justified. They, there, there's, there's no works of the law required to be justified. But, but James as we're going to see, does think the Gentiles should do some things. Not to be justified, uh, but for some, some practical, some, some really kind of pragmatic reasons, which, which we're going to see here. And so James follows up here in verse 20 with a few things that he thinks these Gentile converts should do or actually not do. And he lists four things. It's an interesting list. Verse 20 says, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Interesting list, isn't it? Have you ever, you know, been out on the streets at UT and, you know, oh, I hope somebody gets saved today. Is this the kind of list you thought that you would leave them with, you know, after they've professed Christ, like... This is not the, the list that would come to my mind on, on the first things that I would give to a, a, new, a new convert. So the question is, why this list? Why does James bring up uh, this list? Why these particular standards that he's saying these Gentiles should, should abide by? And I think James is actually addressing a kind of like a combination of issues here uh, with this list. Um, look back at the list. I'm going to kind of explain, kind of clarify some of these things. So when he says, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, this is most likely referring to to foods that get sacrificed to idols in in kind of like these pagan temples. He said uh, sexual immorality, and that's kind of a given. Um, That word porneia is is a very general term for, for sexual sin, but there was actually, uh, Pornea was actually directly involved in some of the pagan worship. Like they had these cult temples where you could go and sexual promiscuity was like part of the worship in these pagan religions. Some of the religions these Gentiles would have just come out of. Uh, James says, stay away from that sexual morality. He says, uh, from what has been strangled. Now, the Jews had special stipulations for how you're supposed to kill an animal uh, if you're going to eat it. Um, and then lastly, he says, from blood, which, again, most of the commentators kind of put that along with the, the strangling. There was actually a, a proper way to drain the blood. You weren't allowed to eat an animal with the blood still in it. So, so why this list in particular? The, I think the two concerns James addressing is, First, especially with these first two in the list, um, with the, the things polluted by idols and the sexual morality, I think James is, is wanting to ensure that these new Gentile converts um, don't get entangled again in, 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 the, in the promiscuity and the idol worship that they just came out of. 
Keep far away from those things that you guys, that, that kind of worship you used to do, don't, don't worship like that anymore. Keep, keep your distance from those things. Um, but the second thing I think James is addressing, and this is kind of like where most of the commentators go, is they're pointing out that, that all four of these things on this list, all four of these things are, are explicitly uh, called out um, in the law. Leviticus chapter 17, chapter 18 includes all of these actually specifically uh, pointed out in the law as things to refrain from. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, it's repeated in, in Leviticus 17 and 18 that these rules, these laws are, are not just for the Jew living in Israel, but even if there's a Gentile sojourning in Israel, they have to abide by these stipulations. So the commentators are saying this, this can't be a coincidence that all of these regulations are in Leviticus 17 and 18, and uh, that, that's why James might be bringing these up. And I think, I think the commentators are, are on to something because, as James kind of sums up here and how he ends, uh, look at verse 21. Because James knows that these Gentiles are going to now, when, when these Gentiles are being saved, I mean, there's the, the, who's preaching the gospel? Paul, Paul, these Gentiles, I mean, these uh, Jews are preaching the gospel to them. They're preaching in the synagogues. These Gentiles are going to come into fellowship with, with ethnic Jews, with, with people who grew up with the law. This is something these converts are going to have to be mindful of. So verse 21 says, in, in essence, why this list of four things? Verse 21, four. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So in essence, what seems like is happening is, is James is, is, is aware that there's going to be this, um, this mixture and possibly this conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in, in to help the unity of the church, um, these Gentiles need to be aware of some of these, some of these dietary, some of these sacrificial rules um, that might stumble these Jews that they need to be worshiping the Lord with. They, they're going to be in close contact with them. So, so at, James, in essence, is saying you're not justified by works of the law, but but keep these things in mind. Restrain from some of these things. Just Here's a minimal list of things, of, of food regulations um, to keep your Jewish brothers from stumbling. And, and, and here's some things that, that pagans do. Don't get caught back up in your paganism. Uh, here's a minimalistic list of things that you could do as Jew and Gentiles come together. So, so how is James's, uh advice received? Verse 22 then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and to send them back up to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And so this is interesting to me because the book of Acts is a letter. The book of Acts is a, is a letter Luke writes to Theophilus. And in this letter, Luke includes another letter. And so now we literally have this letter uh, written out. It seems to be, I mean, it's a short letter, 
but it seems to be probably the entirety of, of what was written um, because the apostles are going to be there with the letter so they could add to it if necessary. But basically, this little letter here uh, that we'll just read is, is a summary of what we just went through. So second part of verse 23, here's the letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that there, uh, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So I'm just stopping here. Uh, the reference he's, he's referring to is these men who came up from Judea, in essence, saying they were from the Jerusalem church. Uh, they're making crystal clear in this letter, those guys are not from us. We, we were not telling them to tell you guys, you must be circumcised. Um, they're setting the, the record straight from there. Those guys were not from us. Uh, verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So that's the letter. Uh, the Jerusalem Assembly here puts this little letter together. In essence, based on what James says, these, these very minimalistic requirements for the Gentiles to follow. If you'll note, and it's worth noting, there's no circumcision mentioned. There's no Sabbath keeping. There's no sacrifices. Just a couple things that keep the Jewish Christians from stumbling and, and, and to maintain a healthy separation from their previous, previous idolatry. So they're sent with the letter. Um, let's, just, let's just end for time's sake with this last section here. Um, how was the letter received by the church in Antioch? Let's see. Verse 35. I'll read, I'll read this last section here. Where are we at? It's not verse 35. Where am I at? Verse 30? Verse 30, okay. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So that's good. It seems, in essence, the church received this instruction. There wasn't any more fight being given by the church in Antioch. and Everything seems resolved. For the moment, this 
false teaching had been squelched, this, this teaching that you must keep Mosaic law for salvation. The gospel of grace is defended by all the apostles in, in unison. And we can just thank God that he ensured that his gospel was protected, that his gospel was preserved. Now, I had a little section here for, by way of application um, what, what, what kind of applications can we draw from this whole, this whole debate, this whole issue, this, well, Acts chapter 15 so far? And I'll tell you uh, the Presbyterian application. The reason I address maybe a Presbyterian application is because what happens a lot in churches like ours uh, with people who read a lot of the theology and, and Reformed theology that we read is a lot of those guys are Presbyterian. And because they say a lot of things that we love and a lot of things that we agree with, and they've done, dare I say, way more, work, way more theology work than, than the Baptists have, we tend to read more Presbyterians for, for that reason. You know, all of our favorite reformers, in essence, are in essence coming from that stream of, of church government. But What's interesting to note about Acts chapter 15 and what the Presbyterian does with it is the Presbyterian uh, takes what happens in Acts chapter 15 and the way the apostles uh, leave their church in Antioch and go to the church in Jerusalem and attempt to resolve this issue. They kind of take that as prescriptive for how the church government's supposed to be set up. As in you're supposed to have this like hierarchy of churches and that's how questions and debates are issued, And so they see Acts chapter 15 as kind of setting the standard for how your church government should function. And so they have, you know, these different levels. They have, they have the members, the, the sessions, the presbyteries, the synods, and then ultimately this, this general assembly, as they call it, which is, I guess, what they're interpreting, you know, the Jerusalem council and the, and the church happening there is, as being. But um, I, I don't see... Acts chapter 15, obviously, that's why I'm in a church like this and not a Presbyterian church, but Acts chapter 15 doesn't seem to be uh, the Antioch church appealing to the Jerusalem church as if like they're the overseeing church, um, and that's kind of this hierarchy that they're, that they're following. And, and even if it were, I would say, what, what's the obvious difference between Acts chapter 15 and any situation we're in now is that uh, there's apostles in Jerusalem. And so we don't have any hierarchy of apostles that we can go seek out some, some answers to our questions from. So I just don't see that, that even correlating to the situation that we're in now. And, and to, to put one on top of that, I don't, I don't think the Apostle Paul in any sense was appealing to uh, the Jerusalem apostles to, to explain to him and to confirm for him what the gospel was. Um, when you read the book of Galatians in that opening chapter of Galatians chapter 1 that Jason took us through, um, Paul is uh, definitively clear about the fact that he did not receive his gospel from man. He received it from Jesus Christ himself. Um, he, he, he speaks of the apostles in Jerusalem in such a way that lets you know that he does not see them, uh, the so-called uh, apostles of repute or some, some sort of language is the way that he speaks of them, but he doesn't see them as being higher than, 
than he is even. Um, That's not how he views. I think what Paul was doing when he went to Jerusalem was he was defending his gospel and arguing for his gospel. He wasn't there to ask them to confirm his gospel. I think Paul wasn't thinking that in any sense. So I obviously don't follow the the Presbyterian line of thinking with with Acts chapter 15. And, And I've said it before, that really is the that becomes one of the most dis- difficult aspects uh, of studying the book of Acts, right? Because these are the earliest churches we see. This is the beginning of the church. And so the question when you're, when you're looking at these first churches is, um, why, is that, why are the things it's saying included in the... Are, are, these, are these descriptive? Are these simply descriptive of how the early church uh, functioned and went down? Or is all of this... or, or is it prescriptive mean, should we do everything exactly like they did it, right? Um, so as you study the book of Acts, that's what you have to kind of discern is like, is, is this an ex- exceptional situation because it's a, the first church is being planted? Is that why this thing is happening? Or is the Bible kind of stating in such a way that makes us think this is how we should also function all the time? That's that's one of the things I have in mind as I go through. Hopefully I'll make those things clear. I mean, I think we kind of looked at one of those issues, right, in Acts chapter 14, where Paul did his missionary work, and he plants all these churches, and then maybe it was a year before he came back to those churches and, and uh, established pastors. I was kind of making the application, like, hey, look, we're not the only church without pastors, right? They didn't have a pastor for a whole year, um, but I don't think that, I think that was descriptive of this situation as these first churches were being planted. It's not prescriptive saying, hey, when you start a church, don't have a pastor. You see the, 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 the difference there. So that's one thing we have to keep in mind um, when we're studying the book of Acts. But to close, what I think is the big takeaway, not only from Acts chapter 15, but I think we see it clearly here, but the book of Acts, um, we see how far the disciples of Jesus are going to not only preach the gospel, but to defend the gospel. That's the big takeaway. I mean, the Apostle Paul, as we looked at his first missionary journey, you could say Paul earned the right to retire. Paul could have, for everything he did there, he was already stoned to death. I mean, for, for, for his troubles, he could have been resting back at Antioch and just been a, uh, a lay elder and, you know, preached and taught when he, when he felt comfortable and he had earned that right. But Paul does not stop until his dying day to spread the gospel, to defend the gospel. Um, that journey that it just mentions, oh, Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem. That was 300 miles away. 300 miles in the first century is no small feat. I mean, we wouldn't be able to make a 300-mile journey now with our fancy hiking boots and, you know, water camel backpacks like but these guys did these for the sole reason of defending the gospel there's people teaching false doctrine in our churches i don't care how far i have i'll go through 300 miles let's go and he just without question travels 300 miles and so to the apostle paul the central focus was that god be glorified through the preaching of the gospel and I think the, the more we can have that as our, as our focus, the more we can have that, that mind of Christ that was in the mind of Paul, we could be able to say like, like Paul does. I'll end with this last quote, 1 Corinthians 9.23. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 
Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray that you would bless this this word, Lord. Surely you have this whole story in Scripture for this purpose, Lord, that we would see the importance of of justification by faith alone, but also the importance of giving our lives for the gospel and supporting the gospel and defending the gospel and preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel that that all of your elect would be brought in, Lord, that your church would be full, Lord, that that more people would escape escape eternal torment, Lord, and would be brought into fellowship with you, would be able to worship you rightly, that their prayers would be heard, that that they would have peace with God, Lord. We pray that you would, Lord, use your church for this gospel, Lord. Watch over the preaching, watch over the teaching. Lord, sanctify this place for, for your gospel. We pray that you would be set apart in this place, Lord. Bless the brethren as they travel back from the conference, Lord. Keep them safe on the highways. We pray that that they were all very encouraged, Lord, that they were all fed well, that they would have good words to bring back to the church, um, that, the, that the brothers would be encouraged to, to want to teach and preach when they get back, Lord, but we, and we thank you for the, we thank you for these other churches, Lord, just, just like we saw in Acts, Lord, that, the, that these churches had other faithful churches to turn to in times of need, to, to support each other, Lord, we thank you that we have these other churches, the church in San Antonio, these churches in Denton, Lord, we We thank you, Lord. We pray you'd use them for our good as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's take the supper. And because I didn't specifically, in essence, reference the the resurrection in the sermon, although once I started going through the sermon and I thought I could have emphasized the fact of Brother James there in Jerusalem, how he wasn't converted until, until seeing the resurrected Jesus. That's, that's amazing. This guy lived his whole life with Jesus and yet was unconverted until, until the resurrection. But as Scripture would have it, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're, we're obviously commemorating the death of the Lord Jesus and as tradition would have it, and we, we do set it apart as tradition. We understand its, its place in reference to Scripture, but as a tradition, many celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on this day, and the death of Christ is celebrated every week now in, in the Lord's Supper, and once a year there is a day set apart to celebrate the resurrection in, in particular, and these two events are, are intimately connected that one assumes the other one assumes the other and in as far back again we it seems like we're referencing Abraham a lot what's funny the New Testament references him a lot too but even Abraham was aware of this connection as far back as Genesis chapter 20, 22 because if the promised one was to be sacrificed Abraham's assumption the Bible tells us well if the, if the promised one is sacrificed, then, then resurrection must be the obvious answer. If, if, if the promised one has a calling to fulfill and he's to be sacrificed, then God must 
must be willing to raise him from the dead. And so even Abraham, with, with what relatively little uh, revelation he had, was able to make that connection to the sacrifice of the promised one and the resurrection from the dead. And it's interesting when you, when you read through Paul's epistles in particular, um, phrases like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I'll read it to you. It says, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what Paul's obviously not excluding is, is the reality of what would happen three days later after the crucifix, uh, crucifixion, right? Um, Paul says again something similar, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. What does Paul preach? Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Okay, well that's interesting because when I read through the book of Acts again, what do I see Paul preaching? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you just see how these two realities are our truth so tied together, Paul can say, I preach Christ crucified. Well, when I read your sermons, Paul, you're preaching resurrection, right? Like these two things are, your mind can naturally go between the two. Um, There's a man named Gregory the Theologian from the fourth century, and he was speaking of this reality. It's a famous little quote. He's speaking of the Trinity and how your mind can go between two of these realities, these scriptural realities. And Here's his quote concerning the the Trinity. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish them than I'm carried back to the one. Right? Does your mind do that when you think about the Trinity? You think about God and, oh, God is three, three persons. And as soon as you're thinking about that reality, you think, but there's one God. I think about the one being of God. And your mind goes, same with, same with the death of Jesus Christ and his correlating resurrection. It's, it's no sooner do we conceive of what is, what is actually the greatest sin ever committed. Um, we're literally holding up a, a, a something re- representing Jesus' body being torn. And we're holding up something that is the blood of the Son of God being shed from his murder. No sooner can we think of, of that hideous event and it was to the good news of the resurrection and that Jesus did not stay dead that that broken body that torn body that shed blood was raised it was raised from the dead displaying his power over death and his power over sin and if and if you want to and by all means you can take it to the next logical idea which that raised Jesus was then ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now. He's exalted, sitting at, like, that's what's happening right now as we speak. Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, reigning, the resurrected Jesus. That's what's happening as we sit here. And so this is what that, that tradition of, of celebrating the resurrection is, is to be all about. It's, it's a celebration of the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world through his death, but that Lamb of God was raised from the dead. It, that's what we see in the book of Revelation. It says he, he appears as a lamb. The Lamb of God was raised from the dead. The Lamb is not dead in heaven. The Lamb is alive, and 
And we can celebrate that as we think about the death of Jesus in the, in the Lord's Supper. So maybe, maybe let's think about that good news, that, that Jesus was not killed, murdered, and, and dead, but he is alive. You guys want to start for us and... Yeah, just a reminder, I mean, our guests left, but the gold is the wine and the silver is the juice. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for raising him from the dead. We thank you that he is returned with you. We thank you for sending the Spirit, Lord, um, Be with this little church, Lord. Keep us. We thank you for the brethren, Lord, here that we're able to to worship and and continue to worship despite some being missing, Lord. You are faithful. We sang, great is your faithfulness, Lord. You have been faithful to us to keep us. Lord, keep us for the sake of your gospel, Lord. Keep us for the sake of your glory. Help us never to leave the gospel, Lord. Help us. Even with this supper that we take every week, Lord, let this keep us Christ-focused and Christ-centered, that we can never forget what all of this is about, that at the fullness of the times you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die from our sins. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Let's take the bread. Verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Paul ends by saying, For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. You may be dismissed.